Y'all can be seated. Join me in prayer. Father, that is what we know with all of our heart. That your son's wounds have paid our ransom. That we, at every turn, have turned to ourselves. That we've been selfish and self-seeking. That we put ourselves before others. That we trust our own insight more than we trust what you tell us. And we know that in that, we've found ourselves cut off, estranged, separated from you. Yet in spite of that, in the face of that, you sent your Son, who responded to our sin with grace, and yet more grace, who's not left us as we were, but you've given us your very Spirit that we might be changed, transformed into who you would have us to be. You've given us life, and life in abundance. So may we be marked by a deep hope that can't be shaken. May we be marked by joy that's not dependent on the circumstances around us, but that's dependent on, on you, the giver of all good things. Yes. And so fill us with hope, fill us with love, fill us with peace. We might be your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is good to see you this morning. I'm excited to turn to Romans 5 together. This is one of the most well-known passages in the book of Romans. And so I'm excited to be able to look at that together with you this morning. So Romans 5, I'm going to start reading in verse 12, and we'll go through the end of the chapter through verse 21. Romans 5, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, 
grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5 sets up two different uh, heads, two different eras, two different separations. One is marked by Adam, and the other is Christ. And so Paul takes us through this comparison um, in order to help us see what it is that Jesus has done. Uh, Calvin says it this way. He says, if the purpose of Christ's coming was to redeem us from the calamity into which Adam had fallen a clear realization of what we possess in Christ can only come when we've been shown what we have lost in Adam. And so you see that, especially in verses 15 to 21, there's this constant back and forth. Here's what Adam has done. Here's what Christ has done. Here's the effect of what Adam has done. Here's the effect of what Christ has done. These are just played off of each other back and forth over and over and over, and these two figures, Adam on one side and Christ on the other, function as kind of turning points of two separate ages. So Adam's age is marked by sin and results in death, and Christ's age is marked by grace and results in life, and these two are played off of each other. So two big points that I want to form everything around this morning. Number one, we are estranged in Adam. And then the second one will be that we are reconciled in Christ, which, as we saw last week, was the point of verse 11 and teases on out through the rest of this chapter. So we'll do the first one first, because that would make sense. We are estranged in Adam. We're separated. We are cut off. Now, Paul gives us this pretty vivid picture in verse 12, almost kind of like a double Trojan horse. So we've got an image that I think will help us see it, and then I want you to also look closely at verse 12. So notice closely what Paul says. Paul says, just as sin came into the world through one man. So Adam functions as kind of a Trojan horse, if you will, that he shows up, and what does he bring into the world? Well, he brings sin. But sin doesn't exist on its own, Paul says, and death through sin. So Adam shows up to the world, to humanity, and he ushers in sin, and through sin comes death. And so Adam, for his sin, is exiled from the garden. There's there's cherubim with flaming swords set up to guard the way to the tree of life, and Adam is then separated from the garden from life, and from the God who gives life. And so then what is true of Adam then becomes true of all those who come after him. We all find ourselves plunged into the same pit of death and sin. We are all under the reign of sin and death. Because of Adam, we all live in this age. And so this means that you don't just live in a world that's broken, you also are broken. No one has to teach you how to lie. No one has to teach you how to be selfish. No one has to teach you how to not take blame and to scapegoat. We inherit all of these things naturally now 
because sin and death have been brought into the world. We are shaped by Adam. Now, this is a problem uh, for our current world because our current world is marked by what some people have called expressive individualism. So this means we are individuals. It is up to us to decide who we are, and once we decide who we are, we let that play out. We express ourselves as individuals. We're not formed and shaped by other people. We cut ourselves off. We decide who we are. We build ourselves up. We create ourselves in whatever image that we happen to think would best fit us, and then we express that. But this runs headlong into what Paul says in Romans 5. Paul says in Romans 5 that we are shaped by Adam more than we know. Now, people get upset by this. Who is Adam? You might maybe find yourself asking, or maybe you've heard other people ask, who is Adam that he should make decisions that affect me? I didn't vote Adam to be president or representative of my life. Why should his actions affect me? Shouldn't I be able to decide who I am on my own for myself and not be controlled, affected, influenced by Well, let me ask us a series of questions. So those of us, or those of you who want to stand and fall on your own, why do you find it easier to care about yourself than others? Why do you default to seeing others as obstacles to overcome on the road to finding your own self-fulfillment. Because isn't that how our world tends to think? In order for us to express who we are, there's other people who are in the way, and we need to overcome those other people so that we can be our true selves. Why do you tend to view others as obstacles to overcome on your way to finding your true self? Why do you naturally have a knack for making mistakes, for making excuses for your mistakes? And by the way, isn't that how we tend to think of things we do wrong? They're mistakes. We didn't intend to do it. We had a rough morning. That really got under my skin. I didn't really mean what I did. It was just a mistake. We've got excuses for those. We've got a really good knack for finding excuses for ourselves. But when someone does something to us, we inwardly or sometimes outwardly find ourselves naturally fuming. There is no reason that this would be the right response from them. Why do we find it easy to excuse our own mistakes and give no grace to others? Why do we ask what we want before considering what's best for another? You see, in all of this, You know who we look like? We look like Adam. Right? And here's here's the deal. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in Adam all die. Or as Paul says here in verse 12, death spreads to all. Why? Because all sinned. All do the same thing that Adam does, we find ourselves replaying and redoing what Adam 
does. And so we've got this graphic, and there's one more for you. This then becomes our reality. Adam brings in sin and death, and we find ourselves as those who hold up the banner of sin and death. What Adam does, we find ourselves doing as well. And every time that we do this, we find ourselves loudly or maybe quietly whispering, Adam's my guy. I'll take what he's had. You see, we die not simply because we got swept away in the flood of sin. We die because every time that we sin, we align ourselves with Adam. And we say, where he goes, I too will go. And so in the age of Adam, sin reigns. This is true for Adam, who was given a specific command. Don't eat from this tree, and he did it. This is true for Israel, who was given many specific commands. Don't commit adultery. Don't make false idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Honor your father and mother. Uh, remember the Sabbath. And they consistently broke all of these. And this is also true for all of humanity, Paul says, even those whose sinning was of a different kind than Adam's. And so we see that sin is present everywhere in our world. And how do we know that sin is present everywhere? Well, here's how you know. It's the same way that we know that bacteria is present everywhere. Take a gallon of milk, pull it out of your fridge, and set it on the counter. What happens? Right? It doesn't matter how clean your counters are. It doesn't matter how expensive and fancy of a filter you have on your HVAC system. Your milk is going to go bad. Why? Because bacteria is everywhere, and bacteria destroys milk. The same thing is true for us. All humans die. Tall humans, short humans, good humans, bad humans, nice humans, mean humans, rich humans, poor humans, all die. Why? Because sin reigns and sin produces death. Now don't move too quickly past this. I want you to notice how big of a problem sin and death reigning is. Remember the task that God gave humans at the beginning? Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the animals on the land, cultivate the garden, create, have dominion, rule. But the very task that God assigned to humans, Adam handed over to sin and said, you do. So the situation we find ourselves in in Adam is one that looks very different from what we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. It's not humans in God's image ruling and reigning. In Adam, what we find is humans suffering under sin and death while chaos and destruction runs loose. The very task that God created in the world finds itself undone in Adam. And instead of life and peace and hope, we have misery and suffering and death. So in Adam, what do we gain? Well, in verse 12, we gain sin. In verse 16, we gain judgment. In verse 18, 
we gain condemnation. And in verse 21, we gain death. That sounds pretty hopeless. But if you read Romans 5, you'll notice that's not the tone of Romans 5. The tone of Romans 5 isn't hopeless. It's not sorrow. The tone of Romans 5 is triumphant. It's hopeful. And the reason for that is because it's not just true that we've lost much in Adam. It's also true that in Christ, we are reconciled. So that's the second point that I want us to see. Now, if you were to give this passage a quick read, I think you could be forgiven for finding it strange that Paul is comparing Adam and Christ because Paul seems to think there's nothing that the two have in common. Christ does good, Adam does bad. Christ brings life, Adam brings death. These two seem to have nothing in common except for one thing. Adam and Christ both usher in new ages that affect everyone descended from them. And that's where the similarities end. Adam's age is sin and death, and Christ's is grace and life. So I want to look at verses 15 to 21 together. And I want you to notice this kind of back and forth here. So in verse 15, Paul says the free gift, that's the gift from Christ. He says it's not like the trespass, not like the the gift that came from Adam. Well, how is it not like it? He says, if many died through one man's trespass, so Adam's trespass brings death. Second half of verse 16, what does the free gift bring? The free gift brings grace, and that grace abounds, Paul says, for many. And Paul is going to hammer this theme over and over and over and over again. Verse 16, the free gift, it's not like the result of that one man's sin, for the one man's sin brought judgment, And condemnation, but the free gift brings justification. If because of one man's trespass, verse 17, death reigns through the one man, notice now what reigns. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. Verse 18, one trespass leads to condemnation. Like, yes, Paul, we get the point, right? So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. As the one man's disobedience makes many sinners, so the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Then in verse 21, sin reigns in death. Grace, on the other hand, reigns through righteousness, and that brings life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. These are played off of each other over and over. And so in the age of Christ, grace reigns. This was true for Christ. You remember the scene. Jesus is on the cross, and as he's being crucified, what's reigning? Grace is reigning. Jesus prays for the people who are crucifying him. He says, Father, forgive them. This is true for the disciples. You remember the scene? Jesus tells his disciples to forgive not seven times, but 70 times seven, because in the age of Christ, grace reigns. This is true not just of Christ, not just of the disciples, but of all of Jesus' disciples, because what does Paul tell us? Paul tells us in Philippians 2 to have the mind of Christ, which is humble 
and considers others what? More significant than yourself. That's not a message that we hear anywhere else. Because this is a different age. In the age of Adam, sin reigns and we care about ourselves. We care about getting even. We care about people respecting us and not walking over us. But in the age of Christ, grace reigns and forgiveness is demanded and humility is expected and counting others more significant than yourselves is the mark of the people who follow Jesus. How do we know when grace is present? I think the same way that we know something has bleach on it. Besides the smell, when bleach touches something, it whitens it. It doesn't matter if it's chocolate that was spilled on your shirt or the color that your shirt was originally dyed. When you spill bleach on it, it whitens it. It leaves it different. And when you see that white splotch on your shirt, you know what just happened. Somebody spilled bleach on your shirt. That's what bleach does. And the same is true with grace. If you want to find grace, you look for life. If you want to find sin, you look for death. If you want to find grace, you look for life. And this is true of Jesus' people. All of Jesus' people, we're told, will be saved, will be raised back to life, will follow Jesus in this. This is true for tall Christians and short Christians, for male and female, Jew and Gentile, Democrat and Republican, American, Russian, Ukrainian, rich, poor, even Christians from Oklahoma. Just kidding. All Christians in Jesus have life. Why? Because in Christ, grace reigns and grace produces life. Look at verse 21. As sin reigned in death, grace reigns through righteousness. And what's the product? It produces eternal life. Again, don't move too quickly past this point. Notice what is happening here. Everything that we saw a minute ago was broken is now being fixed. Look look up to verse 17. Paul does something really interesting. Verse 17, Paul says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, and now Paul's going to contrast that. And if we're paying attention, I think what we would expect here is if the one man's trespass brings death and death reigns, then what we would be looking for to now reign would be the opposite of death, which would be life. But that's not what Paul says. Look what he says. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So in verse 17, what's reigning? It's not life. Paul says it's those who receive grace and the free gift of righteousness. This is to sort things out that were previously unsorted. So You remember what we said. The task that God gave humans was to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the animals on the land, to create gardens and to cultivate, to have dominion, to rule. 
But humans in sin said, no thanks, and instead brought death and decay. And in verse 17, Paul says, now those who receive the abundant grace, who believe in Jesus, they will now reign. Here it is, finally. In the age of Christ, things have changed. So what do we gain in Christ? What does it mean to be reconciled? Well, notice what happens when we are reconciled. In verse 15, we're told we get grace. In verse 16, we're told that we get justification. In verse 17, we're told that we will reign. In verse 19, we're told that we receive righteousness. And in verse 21, we are told that being reconciled in Christ means life. This is the good news in Romans 5. We were set off on our own in Adam. But in Christ, those who were cut off, were separated, were estranged, are now reconciled. So what does all this mean? I have a a couple implications, places I'd like to push you to consider. So here's the first one. If in Christ the curse of Adam gets overturned, this means all of the world for us will look different. It should look different. Have you ever wondered why Jesus wanders around and healed people? Like, why didn't he just stick to teaching and proclaiming forgiveness? Why go on these excursions where he's, sick people are coming up and he heals this sick person, another sick person comes up and he heals that person? What is he doing? Is he just flexing his muscles, showing that he's God, or is he doing something else? Well, what he's doing is he's fulfilling Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 said when God shows up among his people, things get flipped over. Blind people see. Lame people walk. Deaf people hear. Those were the marks that Isaiah said, when you see this, you'll know God is in your midst. And when Jesus shows up, what does he do? Deaf people start hearing. Lame people get up and walk. Blind people see. Sick people get better. Dead people get up. Jesus shows up and he starts undoing the effects of sin. Jesus looks death and decay and disease in the face and says, your time is done. There's a new age. And the effect of this among Jesus' people is staggering. After Jesus ascends into heaven, the apostles go out, the disciples go out, and what do they do? We start seeing some of the same things happen. Who is it who would dare to challenge death and decay and disease? Only those who believe that those enemies have been defeated. So Jesus' people have a new outlook on life. Gary Ferngren published a survey uh, by John Hopkins University, and here's a quote. He says, The hospital was, in origin and conception, a distinctly Christian institution rooted in Christian concepts of charity and philanthropy. He goes on to say that all of the things that were needed for a hospital were in place before Christians, 
But before Christians, everybody lived in the age of Adam and thought about themselves. But when Jesus defeats sin and death and all of its effects, Christians get let loose and new things start happening. And so in the fourth century, St. Basil, a bishop in Caesarea, started what locals called the new city. And in this place, there was not only a place for sick people to be cared for, there was also a soup kitchen, housing for the poor, a trade school, a hotel for needy travelers, and hospice for those who were dying. And this visible display of Christian hospitality gave it the name hospital. Where do hospitals come from? Hospitals come from Jesus defeating sin and death. Because now there's a group of people following Jesus who can tell and see and have the courage and boldness to know that death isn't the end. That something else is going on. That death has been defeated, that sin has been defeated, that one day Jesus will come back and all of this will fully, finally be sorted out. But even right now, we who have the gift of the Spirit ought to be about the business of God even now. And so Christians look around and they notice pain and hurt and death and disease, and unlike any who had come before them, they found themselves not only aching, but able. And so when Christ overturns the age of Adam and sets something new, Christians begin to do different things. Adam's contribution were sin and death. Those get undone in Jesus. And now Jesus' people can live strange lives. We can sacrifice our money and our health to care for sick people. We can sacrifice our right to get even to forgive. We can sacrifice our resources to fund missions to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, which, by the way, is one of the central reasons Romans was written. Paul was on his way to Spain, and he was bringing the Romans alongside of him. In the age of Christ, sacrificing our resources to go to the ends of the earth makes all the sense in the world. Some of us, maybe even in this room, may find that in this age it makes sense for us to spend our most healthy, productive years going to the ends of the earth to make Jesus' name known where it's not yet known. And in the end, my hunch is that we will find those weren't actually sacrifices at all but that those were well worth doing, that paid us more than we would have had if we would have been stingy and kept our time, our money, and our resources for ourselves. So in the age of Jesus, Jesus' people are set free to be generous and gracious to those around them. Here's the other implication for us. Every person in this room and in our world live in one of these ages. You either belong to Adam or you belong to Christ. There's no middle ground. You're Adam's or you're Christ's. You reap sin and death or you reap grace and life. Those are the options. And so if you're here with us and you're not a Christian or you're not sure if you're a Christian, let me invite you. You currently live in an age marked by death. But you don't have to. The grace of Jesus is strong enough not simply 
to nullify death. It's strong enough to bring in life. See, often people say things like, Christianity is old-fashioned, irrelevant, out of touch, out of date. It's time to move on to something else. But notice how Paul frames this. It's the opposite. He says the irrelevant, out-of-touch, outdated model is actually Adam. We know what that brings. That brings sin, and we know what sin brings. Sin brings death and division and frustration and hatred and murder, right? Like, if you read the first parts of Genesis, you see where sin goes, and it goes quick. That's the dated, irrelevant, out-of-style way. The new way, Paul says, is actually Jesus. And so if you want to be modern, if you want to be up-to-date, let me invite you, come to Jesus. Jesus pays for our sins. Jesus sets us free. Jesus gives us life, a new hope, and a new purpose. So if you're not a Christian, let me invite you to Jesus. Talk with someone around you. Talk with me after the service. Um, There's nothing that any of us in this room would love to see more than to see people who don't know Jesus, who are ruled by sin and death, to come under Jesus' flag that offers grace and life. To those of you in here who are Christians, to most of you, let me remind you, we tend to think of our conversion as something small, maybe kind of private. Maybe it's changed a little bit about how we think about these things or how we live in this way. But Paul sets up two different eras, two different ages that couldn't be farther apart. Either there's Adam, which is ruled by sin and death, or there's Christ, which is ruled by grace and life. When you came to believe in Jesus, when your heart was transformed, when you were changed, this isn't a small little transition that happened in your life so you could continue going on otherwise as normal. You changed masters. You moved from a cruel master of sin and death to a gracious master who gives life. Your conversion, your transition out of sin and death and to grace in life is not something that you should think of as small or insignificant or private or not that important. When Jesus saved you, he did the most amazing thing, the most impressive thing in all of the world. And so Christians, those of you who've been following Jesus for one week, or 70 years, or more, don't belittle what Jesus has done in your life. Jesus has done marvelous, great, wonderful things, and we owe him a debt of gratitude and praise for the rest of our days. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, you indeed are worthy of praise. You're worthy of praise for more ways than we can count, but this morning we specifically want to praise you for undoing Adam's work and for doing Christ's. We want to praise you for forgiving us of our sins, for making enemies children, for transforming us and changing us. And so help us to live lives that reflect what you've done in us. Help us to live lives that make it easy to see that it's not sin and death and Adam that are on the throne, 
but it's grace and life in Jesus. So do this work in us, because we know that, that this is where meaning comes from, that this is where joy comes from, and that this is how your name is praised. And that's what we want. We want your name to be praised. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.